Hi, I'm Ellie Roark. I'm Wilson Gall. You're listening to Fledgling Theories, a podcast where we bring you insight into current research about birds. Each month we pick a single recent study and talk about it. And you can find that study, as always, on Twitter at Fledgecast or on our website, fledglingtheories.podbean.com. So today we're talking about partial migration, which is when, in a single bird species, some individuals migrate and some stay in the same place all year. So this article focuses on American crows, and if you live in North America, you probably look out your window and see crows all year round. But that doesn't mean that those crows aren't moving around or even migrating during the year. You might not be looking at the same individuals all year round, and very likely some of the individuals are staying put and some are migrating. So Wilson, how common is the phenomenon of partial migration? Well, I think it's fairly common. But man, I really don't know. Yeah, hard so to say. <laughs> this is one of those things that's, it's one of the most sort of vexing questions for me as a birder and a scientist, because there are lots of very common species, and I'm pretty sure many of them are partial migrants. Right. But I don't know for sure because it's very hard to tell. It's not something that you can necessarily tell by looking out the window and seeing the birds around, even if you're a fairly astute birder. Right, which is funny because the reason birds are so widely studied is because they're really easy to observe. You can walk outside, see what birds are there, make very detailed observations of what the birds are doing, and that's one of the reasons we know so much more about birds than we do about a lot of other taxonomic groups. But when you have to start to study individuals and like what individual birds are doing, it becomes much more difficult because they're hard to tell. It's hard to tell individuals. Yeah, so to, to give you an example, there are species for which it's easier to study the migration because you can just observe the species and infer things about the behavior of individuals. For example, in barn swallows, um, because the whole species is there in the summer and then during the winter I go for months at a time without seeing a single barn swallow, the whole species is just absent. I don't have to be able to identify individual birds to be able to make the inference that all those individuals are migrating. I can right. sort of take observations at the species level and use that to draw some conclusions about what individual birds are doing. Right, totally. But this is not so with birds that I suspect are partial migrants, like evidently American crows based on this article, American robins, I think, um, Eurasian blackcaps. Birds like this, I see them all year round. Um, but there are clues that make me think they're partial migrants, but I can't be certain. Right. Yeah. Like, so if you live in North America, you probably see one or two robins around in the winter, but not in huge groups or uh, very many individuals. Whereas in the spring, it's like every lawn has at least one robin on it. It's similar with Eurasian blackcaps here in Ireland. We see lots of them during the summer. There's a blackcap singing every... 200 feet on my walk into work. Right. And during the winter, I see one maybe every three or four weeks. They're around in the winter, but there's way fewer. So based on observing that about the species, I can make some guesses and think probably most of the birds in that species are migrating, but I think maybe some aren't. Right. But that doesn't even necessarily indicate partial migration, where some are resident and some migrate. Some individuals are resident and some migrate. Because it could be that, like, American robins migrate completely, but we see just some overlap 
in birds in the migration area. So every bird could leave, but we see birds that are coming up from the south. It's even harder with species where you see lots of them around in, in all seasons. These could also be partial migrants potentially, but it's even harder to figure out whether that's happening. Right, because there's some overlapping populations. So to answer your question, Ellie, of how common is this partial migration, when we uh, picked this article, this study to talk about, I tried to think up off the top of my head birds that I suspect are partial migrants, and it, I realized that I actually don't know for sure about almost any of them. So I looked up some of these species that I expected or sort of guessed were partial migrants on Birds of North America, which is an encyclopedia, it's online now, and it's the go-to resource for sort of summaries of the scientific information about almost every bird species in North America. I looked up things like song sparrows, um, which do seem to be partial migrants, uh, blue jays, and the, the section on blue jays was sort of um, indicative, I thought, that the section on migration blue jays opens with a sentence that says something like, almost all aspects of blue jay migration are, are what? Are poorly understood. Poorly understood. Says, yeah. yeah, that was the wording, poorly understood. And then they go on to say that they, um, you know, that it's thought that no more than about 20% of any population of blue jays are migrants. And that's based on a study from 1982. Right. Like, that's all we got about blue jays. Yeah. Right so it's a very hard question to study. Yeah, and it's particularly difficult because it's a phenomenon that people ask questions a lot about a lot. Yeah, because it's obvious. But, you know, people like relatives or friends who are not birders, um, when they ask me questions, they know something about the common birds in their area. Right. And most people know something about migration. They know that birds migrate. And people can often see that they see way fewer robins in winter than they do in summer. And so they might ask, you know, are those birds making a mistake? Did right. they forget to migrate? What's, what's going on there? Yeah. How do you know whether birds are migrating, basically, if you're still seeing some individuals? Yeah, these are, they're sort of like very simple questions that are very obvious and very interesting about some, some fundamental aspects of very common birds. And so people ask those questions because they're obvious questions. Right. And yet as scientists, we, we still don't have answers. We do not have those answers. <laughs> yeah. yeah, questions like, where do they go when they migrate? Yeah, where do they go? Um, or how do you know if a bird is a migrant or not? If you see a, if a robin on your lawn in the winter, how do you know if that is a bird that's been there all year long or if that is a bird that, that has flown 600 miles south and is a migrant in the winter there? Totally. And... If populations of birds are partially migrant, if some of them are migrating and some of them are staying, how do you know how many migrate and how many stay? What are the proportions? So this study actually tries to answer all those questions that we just outlined uh, about partial migration. And to do it, they have to use a bunch of really high-tech methods, a couple different really high-tech methods. Yeah, and in science, there's, there are different types of studies, many different types, really, but, but there's, it's sort of easy to see some categories of studies. And two of the common ones are sort of methodological studies, where the, the whole study is working on developing a new method, a new technique uh, to measure something or a new type of statistical analysis or something. So those are methodological studies. Another type of study is more about the actual biological or ecological questions. You're interested in learning something about migration. So you could have a study that is methodological, that's 
that's trying to develop a new technique for studying migration, or you might have a, a study that's really studying the migration itself. And those are two very different types of articles. In my mind, this sort of this study falls more in the methodological type of studies. It's really about trying to figure out how to use these methods to study migration. And it's only secondarily about actually studying the migration of crows. Right, they're but, kind of testing methods for studying the migration of crows. Yeah. So they used three different methods in the study to um, kind of figure out where crows are going. One of them is satellite tags. You can think of this as like a little satellite backpack that the bird wears uh, that basically lets you track where the bird is. And then um, they used stable isotopes in feathers and genetic analysis. So how do these different methods, these three different methods, let us study partial migration? Well, so satellites are kind of an obvious solution for looking at where birds go, because you can literally tell, you strap the little backpack to the bird and then you can see where it is in the world. But they're expensive and um, you kind of have to catch the bird and wrestle the little backpack onto them. And you can only put them on so many birds. So I think this study had 18 birds that had a satellite tracker on that. Um, and you just have to kind of get lucky and hope that those 18 birds that Within those 18 birds, you've caught some that migrate and some that stay. Yeah, and if you imagine, so with blue jays, they estimated 20% of the population is migrant. So that means if you catch 10 birds, only two of them are going to be migrants. So if you put, if you put 10 um, right. satellite tags on, you're only going to get migration information from two. So you kind of need more birds than that. Uh, to make sure you get enough migrants and enough residents. Right, exactly. So that's where using some of the other methods can help validate the info that you get from the satellite birds. Um, isotopes let you do that because in a bird's feather, you can find the chemical signature that is uh, from the place where the feather was grown. So regions of the world have distinct chemical signatures, and you can match the signature between the bird feather and the place where it was grown. Yeah, we did a whole episode on this a couple months ago. Uh, this study, like that episode we did before, looks at hydrogen. It's pretty common for isotope studies. It's convenient because the isotope is basically how heavy the atom is. It has to do with how many neutrons are in the atom. So a hydrogen atom might have a couple, might have different numbers of neutrons, which change how heavy it is. And the basic gist of it is that the lighter hydrogen atoms end up in different places than the heavy ones in the world. Right. And so then when a bird eats food or drinks water, it gets the hydrogen atoms that are there in that place, and those get bound up in the feathers. And then if you catch that bird somewhere else and you pluck the feather, you can look at the hydrogen, you can see how heavy it is, and it'll tell you roughly where that bird was right. when it grew the feather. Exactly. So that's not going to be as specific as a satellite tracker telling you exactly where that bird is roughly, but... Um it will give you kind of a general sense of the area where the bird grew the feather. And then the genetic analysis, do you want to explain what they did there? Yeah, so the genetic analysis, basically, they're, they're looking at how similar the genetics are in different birds with the assumption that if you have a population that's sort of interbreeding, they're going to be exchanging genes a lot, and so the genetics will be very similar between two individuals in that population. If there's another population that's farther away and not interbreeding as commonly, their genetics will be a little bit different. Not different enough that there are new species or anything, but just different enough. Um, and you'll be able to see that difference. 
And so this one, uh, they use you, this one by itself doesn't tell you anything about where a bird is from. Right, because if they have the same, so if two birds have similar genetics, then you can assume they're from the same breeding population roughly, but how do you know if they're migrants? Yeah, they might both be migrants or they might both be residents, you don't know. But they can combine this with the satellite tags. Basically, if you get a satellite tag bird and you get a genetic sample from that bird from blood or something, you know where that bird breeds, and then you also know the genetics of a bird that breeds in that spot. So you might have a satellite tag bird that you know is a resident, and so that gives you a sample of what the genetics of a resident bird look like. You can then catch a new bird, you can take a genetic sample without having a satellite tag from that bird, and you can take that genetic sample and compare it to your satellite tagged bird, and if it matches very closely, then you could say, okay, this bird must also be a resident right. from this same population. Yeah, so it's really like a combination of the methods that makes these three methods valuable because on their own, they each have a lot of shortcomings for answering these questions. That's right, yeah. So just as an aside here, I think it's really interesting that um, our progress in understanding a question as scientists depends on our ability to tinker with methods like this. like. I think, um, you know, before I, I started doing scientific research, I kind of assumed I had this perception of scientists as like experts who have things super under control and the methods are well established and, and they're kind of executing things seamlessly. But really, like all three of these methods are, are very state of the art and require a lot of tinkering to figure out how to make it work. Yeah, basically our, our understanding of migration depends a whole lot on how small you can make these little satellite tags. <laughs> right, you know? totally. And, there's, and it's just people tinkering, you know, so they have to make these tags and they have to make batteries that are really small because these satellite tags have to weigh, I think in this case they weigh less than three and a half percent of the body weight of the bird. Because obviously if the tag is too heavy, it'll impair the bird's flight. And then they have to tinker with a way to attach it. So they've made these little backpacks out of nylon cord and they have to make sure the backpacks don't get in the way of how the, the wings move. Right, yeah. And it's just, it's tinkering. Um, and, and you can't, you know, these are very fundamental, obvious questions. Where do the birds go when they migrate is not a complex question. Right. People have been trying to answer this for a long, long time. Mm -hmm. And it started off like, hey, we can, we can put a little metal band on its leg. And then if someone right. finds the metal band somewhere else, you know. Somewhere else, and right. And now we've graduated to strapping little backpacks on with, yeah. with the tiniest batteries we can we can find, but it's right. all just sort of tinkering. Yep, totally. I also just want to point out quickly, since you bring up banding, that um, banding is a, a very commonly used way to track individual birds, but the recovery rate for, for banding is, is really low. So your sample size ends up being really, really small. If and by recovery rate, you just mean if you attach a band to a bird's leg, it doesn't tell you anything unless you manage to catch that right. same bird later. The chances of ever finding that bird again are actually relatively small. Yeah, so the, the chance of recovering that band in a new location. Yes, exactly. So. Thank you. So anyway, that's why these new methods matter, basically. We're trying to uh, figure out, tinker with how to track individuals in a, a better way. Okay, so getting back to those simple questions. If you're a person looking out your window or a scientist who studies crows, how do you know if your population of crows are partial migrants? So it's still not possible to sort of just look at a bird and know if that individual migrates or not. But this study, I think, makes some progress in figuring out how to answer the question about what, 
whether there are any partial migrants in your population, what proportion. So for one thing, um, by testing these different methodologies and sort of comparing them to each other, this article I think has shown that some of the cheaper methodologies can work to tell you whether you have partial migrants. Basically, you don't need satellite tags necessarily. So it, like the isotope analysis, even though it's very technically complex, is actually not very expensive. Right. You can get a feather. You don't even have to catch the bird. You can pick a feather up off the ground or out of a nest or something. Send that into a lab. You don't have to know how to do the isotope analysis yourself. You send it into a lab. They do it. They send it back. And it's pretty cheap. Because partly it's cheap because isotope analysis is used fairly commonly um, in hydrology, like looking at groundwater, trying to figure out how groundwater moves around. So there are big labs that do a lot of isotopic analysis. Yep. So it's a cheap method, a lot cheaper than satellite tags. Right. So for one thing, if you're a scientist who wants to know about your local population, you could get some feathers and do the isotope analysis pretty cheaply. Right. And it looks like this will give you an estimate. The satellite tags increase the specificity of, of your location estimation. Yeah. So it's true that the, the isotope analysis is fairly coarse spatially, meaning it, it can tell you whether a bird flies a thousand miles away but it's not so good at telling you if a bird only moves 100 miles away. It's just not uh, sensitive enough to detect a short distance movement like that. Right, you have to go pretty far north in North America for the isotopic signature of the hydrogen isotopic signature to change, and, and or you have to go up in altitude a fair bit. Right, but because it's cheap, you can get estimates of the proportions. So this study tested the percentage of the population that's migratory and it tested it three different times, or it estimated that percentage three different times with the three different methods. Right. Using the satellite tags, they estimated something about three quarters of the population of crows migrate and one quarter is resident. When they used the isotopes, they only estimated that about a quarter of the population was migratory. Right. So maybe the true migrants or the migrants aren't actually going far enough for the stable isotopes to show the difference. I think that's exactly right. The, yeah. the, basically, the satellite, a quarter of the birds go far enough that they show up in the isotope analysis easily and the satellite analysis, obviously. Yeah. But about half the birds are moving short enough distances that the satellite tracking identifies them as migrants, but the isotope method does not. And then the genetic analysis was kind of somewhere in between. It, it estimated about half of the birds were migratory. And again, that was based on comparing the genetics to the, the genetics of the satellite tagged birds. Right. So what this gives you is a way to, it, it gives you a choice, basically. You can uh, get sort of a precise but expensive estimate of what proportion of a population is migratory by using the satellite tags. Yep. Or you can use the isotopes or the genetics and get a less ex less precise but less expensive estimate. And you just know that that's sort of a minimum estimate. Maybe you know that the isotope analysis is only giving you the long distance migrants and not the short distance ones. Right. More importantly, I think this study, they looked at two different crow populations, one in New York in the Eastern United States and one in California in the Western United States. The proportions of migrant birds were very similar in both those populations. Right, which I think is actually a relatively important finding because that seems, you know, there's no guarantee that East Coast and West Coast populations of any bird species behave the same in North America because the Rocky Mountains are a pretty severe geographical dividing line between the East and West and those populations are relatively separate. 
So the fact that the phenomenon is happen happening in similar proportions on both coasts, I think, means that it might be a real phenomenon. <laughs> yeah, it, yeah. It, it makes it more generalizable yeah. in my mind. If you only had this result from one place, from New York or something, you'd say, okay, that's fine. Maybe I would assume that, uh, you know, crows in Vermont right next door also have that, but I wouldn't feel comfortable generalizing from a New York, New York study to California. No, or even to Kansas necessarily, you yeah. know. But the fact that this seems very similar in two very different types of places gives me more confidence that I would guess, as sort of my baseline assumption going into a new crow population, a new American crow population somewhere, my initial guess would be that half or three quarters of that population are migratory. Yep. Which is sort of, a, it's useful to have a baseline guess, even if you, uh, of course we would have to measure it to be sure, but if it's not super important to know, but I, I kind of want to know when I'm thinking about some other questions about the bird, it's good to have these sort of baseline guesses that I have a a decent bit of confidence in. Yeah, totally. So in terms of the question of where do they go, like when a bird migrates or doesn't, it's, it's very natural to ask, where does that bird go? It might leave, that's a fine thing to know, but, but where does it end up? Yeah. So again, the isotopes kind of give us a very general answer to that, um, and they can give us a sense of roughly where the super long distance migrants end up. But the satellite tags obviously give us a really specific answer to where do they go um, and are very ideal in terms of tracking individuals. You can figure out if it ends up two towns over or if it ends up a thousand miles away with the satellite tag. And what about the genetic analysis? So when you couple the satellite tagged birds with the genetic analysis, it can let you generalize a little bit um, beyond just the individual bird who has the satellite tag. So um, you can take the genetic analysis of the tagged bird whose location you know, and if you have other genetic analyses, other individuals who are similar to that bird, then you can assume that they're in a similar location. They're breeding in the same region as that, that satellite tagged bird. And, and the, the genetic analysis seems to work at a finer spatial scale than the isotopes. Right. Basically, you can detect shorter distance uh, migrants with the genetic analysis than you can with the isotopes. For one thing, the genetics work east to west. The, the isotopes, for the most part, follow a latitude gradient, so mm. lighter hydrogen tends to be in the north in North America and heavier hydrogen is the south. There's also an altitude gradient, so you can tell if something has gone up a mountain range, but it does not do very well at distinguishing east and west. Sure. The genetic analysis does as long as you have a, a satellite-tagged reference bird. Right. Yeah, so when you combine the satellite tags and the genetic analysis, you actually get a relatively generalizable uh, study. Yeah, you need enough satellite birds to have good references, but then once you have that, you can get cheaper analyses for many more birds by just getting genetic samples without attaching a bunch of satellite tags. Yeah. So this was a mostly, in my mind, methodological study, um, but it did sort of answer some if you want to say sort of biology-specific questions about crows in particular and about their migrations, we've got some estimates of what percentage of the population does this partial migration. But if you sort of zoom out and you think about, well, why would you even ask about partial migration to begin with? Um, what are some of the sort of more fundamental questions about partial migration that are interesting from a biological and ecological and evolutionary perspective? 
Well, I mean, one kind of obvious thing that jumps to mind is, well, the obvious question is, why do some birds migrate and some birds not? And one explanation, one possible explanation is that um, either the population is moving towards migrating as a whole, and some birds have made that transition and some birds haven't yet, or the population used to migrate and is moving away from migration towards being resident. And so some birds are still migrating, but they are moving towards being a resident species evolutionarily. Yeah, or the third option is that both migrating and not migrating can be successful right. strategies. And, and see, so there's no negative consequences of migrating. Or the, or the negative consequences are different and are sometimes outweighed by other things. So sure. with evolution, you sort of assume things, things that are very beneficial or even a little bit beneficial tend to win out and become pretty widely established fairly quickly in evolutionary terms, in terms of number of generations. Yeah. You wouldn't expect to find populations where half or three-quarter of the birds migrate and a quarter or a half don't if one of those strategies was actually much better right. than the other. Yeah. And so this sort of suggests that in different conditions, each of these strategies can be good enough sometimes to sort of stay uh, a part of the population structure. Sure. Or each strategy is equally bad, <laughs> equally harmful in some ways. Yeah, except that in, in my mind, the costs of migration, I think, are usually so high that there's got to be something pretty beneficial about migration. It doesn't seem right. to me like a strategy that's likely to stick around because it's just not very harmful and so there's no pressure for it to disappear. Yeah, of course. Um, because it's, it's difficult for a bird to fly a thousand miles, right. 800 miles. And so if it's going to do that, there's got to be some pretty good benefit that it's getting. Yeah. Which makes me wonder if, if partial migration is more common for very common species, um, like do species who might have kind of a, a density problem during the breeding season migrate in order to better disperse and find lower density areas to breed? Yeah, I, I was reading one of the other review articles about partial migration, and it looked like there were some studies with the American Dipper, which is a sort of a river bird, uh, and it looked like that was what was happening, that they winter sort of low down on rivers, um, probably where the weather conditions are a little better. But then during breeding season, there's just not enough nesting sites to go around, and so there's sort of a... the Some birds are able to stay there in the lower rivers and claim a nest site, but many of the others have to leave to find a, a location to nest. And so yeah. only some of them um, leave. So that is probably an explanation, at least for some species. But Yeah, that's true. Although this study found really high site fidelity for crows, right? Yes. Or, yeah. yeah, okay. Yeah, this study found really high site fidelity for crows. And so that suggests that the same individuals migrate every year and the and the same stay resident. So it's not like every year you evaluate, like you try to get best pick of the nest sites and if you don't get it, then you leave. Yeah, this is actually a very interesting clue about um, how this behavior uh, works with crows because if it was, if, if as you say, every season a crow was making some decision based on how the weather is or how good the food resources are or how competitive it is, right then you would expect to see differences from one year to the next. As a crow gets older and more experienced, maybe it would be able to hold a territory all year long, so it sure. might switch from being a migrant to being resident. Yeah. 
but that's not what they found. Some of these birds, the satellite trackers were attached for two, three, or four years. Yeah. And every year the bird did the same thing. It either migrated. It just migrated, goes back to literally the same nest spot. Yeah, it yeah. either migrated or it didn't, which means that probably it's sort of a characteristic of the population. You know, it's a characteristic of the, those migratory birds that they always migrate, kind of regardless of the situation. Yeah. And the residents are always resident. Yeah, I also wonder, this study grouped birds into residents and long-distance migrants, but I wonder how much of a gradient there is. Like, if, if there are short-distance migrants and birds that kind of disperse all the way up to the longest-distance migrants that they found in the study, or if uh, truly there are only long-distance migrants who are flying, you know, a thousand K or something, a thousand kilometers, and residents. Yeah, how... Yeah, it's a question sort of of how, how rigid or stereotyped is the migration? Is it the kind of thing where for whatever reason, genetic or, or learned or whatever, the crows either are resident, and in, in this case with the satellite tag birds, the residents stayed within, I think, something like 25 kilometers right. all winter long. So a very local um, range. And then they had the long distance migrants that were flying hundreds of kilometers. Yeah. Um, I wonder, are there birds that go... 80 kilometers yeah. or 100 or 200. They didn't, I, th I think they didn't get any of those on the satellite tags, if I remember correctly, but they also only had satellite tags on 18 birds. Right, exactly. And so if you if you just got the isotopic signature from some of those birds, then you wouldn't know that they were different from the resident population because they'd be close enough. And so I, I sort of wonder what the implications are for the causes of migration. If, if what you have are birds that are either resident, very local, or migratory and they go long distances, then you can sort of be looking for some sort of on-off switch or binary mechanism, whether it's genetic or behavioral, sure. you know, learned or something, that, that makes a bird either be resident or makes it migrate, and then when it migrates, it goes far. Totally. You know? But if you have birds that vary, you know, that are highly site-specific and have high site fidelity and they always migrate, 80 miles, and there are others that always migrate 120 miles, and others right. that always migrate 200. All of a sudden, now we're sort of looking for 10 or 20 or 30 different switches. You yeah. Know, you would need to, to the turn The mechanism on. is a lot more complex, it would seem. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so I'd be very curious to see how continuous that distribution is of distances that the migrants fly. Yeah, me too. Although it seems like the genetic analysis in this study is evidence that it's not super continuous because they did find kind of two distinct genetic populations, if I'm remembering correctly. So actually, I don't, I don't think they found two distinct groups. I think that that finding of two distinct groups was more uh, a result of how they asked the question. Oh. Hmm. When they asked the question, they basically, remember the genetic analysis relies on comparing the genetics to the satellite tag birds. Oh, that's right. And they basically made a cutoff and said, we're either calling a bird a resident or a migrant. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So they determined the two genetic populations. Sure. Basically. And then when you look at the genetics, they, they were very successful when they got a new bird at figuring out which of those two groups it should be in. Yeah, yeah. But those aren't necessarily natural groups. Right. Uh, and so when they looked at the migrant birds based on the satellite tracking, the migrant birds actually had a migration distance that ranged anywhere from 280 to over a thousand kilometers. Mm. So within that migrant group that they had, there's actually a big range of behavior. Right. And I'm curious about how much behavior is sort of on the short end of that scale. Is it only one or two? You know, is it pretty rare or is there sort of a lot of 
variation in that migratory distance. Yeah, totally. And again, I, I think they you, I think they probably grouped him into those two categories of resident versus migrant because it makes the statistics possible to do basically with yeah. these kinds of sample sizes. Yeah, you'd need a much higher sample size, I think. I mean, I don't I don't understand these methods super well, but I think you'd need higher samples to be able to really pick apart some of those intermediate distances. And I think I, I also noticed that uh, for their East Coast study, the genetic analysis worked a lot better when they took out, when they removed from the analysis four birds that were migrant, but not very far migrants. Mm. There were four birds that, that bred within like two degrees north of the resident <laughs> okay. population. So it's the opposite of my impression, actually. The, the evidence is showing that there might be that complete gradient. Yeah. yeah, and actually to really do well with the genetics, they sort of said, okay, we'll forget about the middle ones and we'll just classify things as resident or long distance migrants. <laughs> sure, right. And sort of ignore this, this middle ground. So I think, I mean, I think basically this is just the next challenge sort of for the tinkerers. From a methodological perspective, You've got the ability to get good precision with the satellite tags, to get high sample size cheaply with the isotopes, yep. to get a little better resolution with the genetics, but I think there's still sort of a gap in in finding a good way to study these short distance migrants. It's <laughs> totally. not quite there yet. Yeah. Time for more tinkering. Yep. So if you want to look at this article for yourself um, and check out the graphs and stuff, you can find it on our website, and it's called... Where do winter crows go? Characterizing partial migration of American crows with satellite telemetry, stable isotopes, and molecular markers. It was written by Andrea K. Townsend, Blair Frett, Anne McGarvey, and Connor C. Taff. It was published in the AUK in 2018, and the DOI is 10.1642 AUK-18-23.1. Thanks for listening. The funding for my PhD position comes from a project funded by Science Foundation Ireland. I'm at University College Dublin in the Ecological Modeling Group of John Yearsley. If you want to find out more about our research in the Ecological Modeling Group, you can go to www.ucd.ie/ecomodel.